It's a joy for us to be able to come together today to worship our sovereign God who rules the nations, who reigns over all things, even every detail of your life. And so we come to sing of him and to delight and treasure him today. I do want to encourage you now to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah is tucked there in about midway through your Old Testament. So if you take the Old Testament, kind of go halfway there, Nehemiah chapter 9. We've been walking our way through this book uh, since the beginning of this year, and we are excited to see what the Lord may have for us this morning as we look at his word yet again from the ninth chapter. You can kind of hold your place there. Today we're going to kind of read the text as we go through the message, so a little different than normal, and so it's a longer text, and so I think it'd be better for us to do it that way today. Uh, but you can just kind of hold up right there for a moment. I just want to encourage you, remind you as you likely have seen driving in and out each and every week uh, that the building that we uh, are constructing is going up. And so we're excited about that, uh, continue to see progress there, and it's really exciting to see kind of it begin to take shape. And I just want to encourage you just to say thank you for how you've been generous in supporting that effort uh, just through your prayers, through your generosity and giving uh, how we've been able to do that because of the Lord working through you. So we're really, really thankful for how you've been gracious and kind and generous in your giving. And I just want to encourage you, we are down to the last two months of our formal capital campaign. And so some of you have uh, don't even remember starting a capital campaign. You've joined us since then. But three years ago, we started a capital campaign where we committed... I think it was about $1.3 million. And I think we're less than 100,000 in seeing that fulfilled today. And so really thankful. Yeah, you can clap. Thank you, Dave. Yeah, appreciate it. Uh, it's the only time you can clap in church. Just kidding. Uh, so Dave, because you're clapping, it must mean you're giving generously to this campaign. So we're really thankful for that. I just want to encourage you to say thank you, but also just to remind you just to keep on keeping on. I know sometimes it can be exhausting in, a, in an effort like that, just to keep on persevering. So just keep, keep it up, keep, keep your faithfulness up, and we're just so thankful for it. We're looking forward, Lord willing, Rick Benefield can give you an exact date when the building will be finished, uh, but uh, Lord willing, this fall sometime, we will see that come to some completion. Uh, we'll see as time progresses. All right, well, let's pray one more time as we open the word of God together. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, revealing to us what we need to see and understand. So Lord, as we open our Bibles this morning to the ninth chapter of Nehemiah, Lord, would you give us wisdom? Would you give us understanding? Lord, help us to see what we need to see that our lives would be changed for your glory. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Do you ever long for revival? Revival personally, maybe revival in the church, in the community, in the nation. Is this something you ever give much thought to? That word, that, that idea of revival, is that something you desire, long for? And, how, and, and if so, how do you know when it comes. Growing up in Northeast Tennessee, there was often a lot of talk of revival. 
In fact, most churches in our community would have what would have been a week-long service that they would call revival. And while having nightly worship gatherings in a week isn't a bad idea, I'm not sure what we called revival was really revival. Revival is not something you can merely schedule and put on a church sign. It is much deeper. The impact is much greater. There is such a thing as revival. History has been replete with examples. You think of the first and second great awakening, many other examples we could go to just to see a fresh move of God's spirit upon his people to bring a newfound longing and desire to to follow him. I like what Pastor John Piper said about revival. He, He said, in the history of the church, the term revival in its most biblical sense has meant a sovereign work of God in which the whole region of many churches, many Christians, has been lifted out of spiritual indifference and worldliness into conviction of sin, earnest desires for more of Christ and his word, boldness in witness, purity of life, lots of conversions, joyful worship, renewed commitment to missions. He goes on and says, you feel God has moved here. And basically revival then is God doing among many Christians at the same time or in the same region, usually what he is doing all the time in individual Christians' lives as people get saved and individually renewed around the world. While revival is not something that we can personally manufacture, it is something that we can and should long for and even pray for and seek. Pray for it in our own lives, in the life of our church and our community as we pray for other congregations and seeing God work in our midst. It's something we ought to long for. It's something we can't cause. You can't put revival on a church sign and say, we're gonna have revival this week. It doesn't work that way. I was always the the one who would speak up about that and kind of be the the critic, the cold water committee. Try to have revival. You can't schedule revival, but you can certainly pray for it and long for it and desire it and seek it. Here in the book of Nehemiah, we sense a bit of revival taking place among God's people. They've returned from exile to the city. They've rebuilt the walls, but the work is not complete. What good would God's holy city be if God's people were not God's holy people living in communion and fellowship with him? The whole point for the people to return to Jerusalem was not to brag about their walls or rebuilt buildings, but rather to see their lives transformed and renewed and and recommitted to who the Lord is. In fact, if you were to go back, I know last week week Pastor Jeremy preached from chapter eight, and then in chapter eight, Ezra read from the law, but if you go back to the book of Ezra, which is Ezra and Nehemiah was one book in the original, We've divided it in two books in our Bibles, but it's the same kind of storyline of people, God's people returning from exile, first two waves in Ezra, third wave now in Nehemiah. If you go back to Ezra chapter nine, 
verse eight. This is something that you see Ezra saying and as he thinks about their return. This is what he said in chapter nine, verse eight. Ezra says, but now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. And I think that what Ezra said is now starting to unfold here in Nehemiah chapter nine. True revival is a work of God's Holy Spirit whereby he awakens his people and gives them a renewed sense of devotion to God as they seek to live out their lives before him. And here from Nehemiah chapter nine, I think what we see here is what happens, it's kind of a both and, you see that these elements of revival that we're gonna walk through this morning are things that should be in place for revival to happen, but they're also fruits of revival. You see these things happen as a result of when God re, God visits his people and, and brings a sense of revival among them. So I want us to see these evidences of revival this morning and as we walk through them, that we would be prayerful, that we would be mindful, that we would be desirous even of these things to be true in our lives, that we would be longing for and praying for and seeking for a sense of renewed longing and desire for God in our lives personally, in the life of this church and certainly beyond. So let's walk through these evidences of revival together this morning. First thing that we see as we come to Nehemiah chapter nine and a sense of this, this, this renewed, eager pursuit of God. First thing that you see is a humble confession of sin. Look at verses one and two of chapter nine. It says, now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. The Israelites have assembled yet again. We know last week they were assembled as they heard the law read, as Ezra read the law there in chapter eight and as they celebrated the Feast of Booths, now some 23 days later they are assembling again but this time to openly confess their sins and the sins of their fathers to the Lord. They come together in sackcloth and fasting with, with dirt on their heads. This was symbolic of coming before the Lord out of a sense of humility and mourning. What we have here in Nehemiah chapter nine is, is really one of the beautiful things about scriptures. You can see kind of the fulfillment of certain things said previously. And if you were to go back to the book of Leviticus, recently in my daily Bible reading, I was reading through the book of Leviticus and if some of you got to Leviticus in your yearly Bible reading plan and you gave up, keep going. Leviticus is a book about holiness, God's holiness, his call for his people to be holy. And if you were to look at Leviticus chapter 26, Leviticus chapter 26 and verses 14 through 42, you have this, this call for holiness and a warning given to the people when they don't pursue it. So if you look at 
Leviticus 26, verses 14 through 33. God warns the people that if they will not listen to him, and if they will not do all his commandments and break his covenant, then he will discipline them. One of the things that's said there in Leviticus 26, he says, if you disobey, you shall be struck down by your enemies and I will scatter you among the nations and your land shall be desolate and your cities a waste. Well, guess what? That's exactly what happened. Over time, they continued to rebel and continue to break the commands of God and they were not, they were not repentant of that. And so God, through his warning, he's very patient with them wasn't just one warning and the first time they disobeyed, they're out. No, over years and centuries even, he warned them and they continued and they were taken away into captivity. And now, some 70 years after that happened, they are returning from that captivity that they were warned would happen because of their disobedience. So now they're returning. In Leviticus chapter 26, 40 through 42, the Lord says, but if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their father's in their treachery that they committed against me, then I will remember my covenant. Well, that's what's happening right here in Nehemiah chapter nine. What Moses said in Leviticus 26, 40 through 42, listen, if you continue in sin, God's gonna strip you from the land. But if you confess your sins and the sins of your fathers, I will remember my covenant. Well, that's what's happening now. They're returning to the land and confessing their sins and the iniquity of their fathers and being renewed in covenant relationship with God. So here after some 70 years of exile, the people see their ungodly ways. By the way, it's a fruit of hearing the law of God read in chapter eight and now again in chapter nine, we're gonna see that. And they confess their sins. You think about confession. Confession of sin, we, we do it every week in some capacity here. I say every week, most every week. We have a time of confession, whether it's through a prayer or sometimes even a song or a scripture reading. Just a call to remind us that we are not God, that we have fallen short. The Bible talks about if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Confession is an individual and corporate discipline, responsibility that we've been given and that we have before God that recognizes that we are accountable to him. Now they're gonna get very specific in their confession later on in verses 32 through 35, we see that, which I think also reminds us the importance of being specific in our own confession. Friends, when you think about the story of Israel, Israel's story is in many ways our story. It's easy to look down upon them. It's kind of easy from afar to look back and just say, how could they be so foolish? They did good for a while, then they would sin and God would bring a redeemer and kind of clean them up and, and there they go again. And it's just this vicious cycle throughout the Old Testament. Just think about your own life. You not see that vicious cycle in your own heart? Even though we're separated by thousands of years, we have the same sinful nature they had. Confession is really a wonderful blessing. It recognizes God's holiness and justice, and yet the same God who was holy and just and righteous is also merciful and gracious and long-suffering and patient. 
recognizes how we are accountable to him, but the same one to whom we're accountable is the same one willing to forgive us and pardon us. Brothers and sisters, confession is simply a gift of God that he gives us not for some yearly ritual. Confession is something that we are in need of daily. Like this ought to be a daily, regular part of your prayer life. When is the last time you came before the Lord in true confession? It seems like an odd question. I wrote that down this way. I thought, well, surely we confess our sins regularly. I mean, we've got plenty every day, right? But I mean, think about that. When, not, not the general maybe prayer that we kind of had the bad habit of praying growing up, Lord, forgive us of our sins at the dinner table. I'm talking about, Lord, I was selfish in how I just spoke to my child. Will you forgive me? Lord, I'm greedy. I was so impatient. Lord, this bitterness, this very specific recognition of how we have fallen short of the glory of God. When is the last time you poured out your heart before God and asked him to forgive you for these things? When is the last time you did that? God has given us the, the, the joyful privilege of coming before him, the one to whom we're accountable, and saying, Lord, I have sinned, will you forgive me? And the Bible says he will. Confession is a grace the Lord gives. And do not presume upon it. Love what A.W. Pink once said. He said, it's not the absence of sin, but the grieving over it that has distinguished a child of God from empty professors of faith. Be careful though, because if you're not careful in the grieving over sin, you can go from one extreme to the other, rarely thinking about it, to being paralyzed by it. So as we confess, we grieve and we mourn, as we see exemplified here in the text, but then we give that over to God and we trust that he will forgive us as he's promised. So you see that revival is often marked by a humble recognition and confession of sin. Walking with the Lord, this is a regular daily reality that ought to characterize each and every one of us. And if you found in your own prayer life that, that confession is largely absent, be reminded this morning of the grace it is to you and the promise that God has made to forgive us of our sins. Second observation that we see, a second characteristic of revival that we see in this text is not only a humble confession of sin, but a reliance upon God's word. You see it in verse three. I know we got a lot of verses to go, but be, we're gonna start getting bigger swaths. Verse three, and they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. Think our sermons are long. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. Now, I'm not gonna spend a long time here because Pastor Jeremy treated this subject very well last week in helping us understand how it's God's word that creates God's people and how we're shaped by the scriptures. You see it uh, in chapter eight, and you see a reference again here in chapter nine to the, to the word of God. And, as the people assemble, they, they confess their sins and they read from the law again and they worship. We see the centrality of the word of God, how it played a crucial role in the, the renewal and reformation of God's people there in 
Nehemiah's day. Brothers and sisters, let me be as clear as I possibly can. If you are not spending regular time reading, meditating upon, and seeking to apply God's word in your life, you will simply not flourish as a follower of Jesus Christ. If Bible reading is not a regular discipline in your life, you can forget revival. It is the scriptures that reveal the truth of who God is to us. It is the scriptures that reveal the reality of who we are. It is the scriptures that show us the reality of what God has done to reconcile us to him and how it shapes our understanding. It was the scriptures that confronted the Israelites in their sin. It was the scriptures, it was hearing the law read God used that to awaken them to the reality of their own depravity so that they would confess their sins. But not only through confession, it would lead to worship and praise. Brothers and sisters, it's not possible for you to walk in joyful fellowship with God unless you are regularly feeding upon God's word. This is, not, this is a non-negotiable this past week, uh, an article came out in the Gospel Coalition from Brett McCracken called, Are We Too Distracted for Revival? Caught my eyes since I was kind of preaching on this same theme. Super helpful article. And in the article, he lists three things that keep the Western church from experiencing true revival. And the first one he says, the, the first distraction he references is what he calls, he says that we are too distracted by trending words to savor the timeless word. He writes, central to the great revivals of history is the Bible preached, studied, and treasured. The better word of Christ exalted over and above the inferior words buzzing around us all the time. Centrality of scripture in our lives. Listen, brothers and sisters, reading the Bible is not a time issue. especially when you compare the amount of time we spend scrolling mindlessly through Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and TikTok and trying to figure out that darn five-letter word on Wordle. You think about the time we waste on mindless things like that, it's devastating. It's a devastating indictment against us when we say, I just, I just don't have the time to spend in God's word. It's not a time issue, it's a heart matter. So friends, if you are convicted by the fact that you are not spending adequate time coming and opening the word of God, listen, it's not attempt, this is not any attempt to kind of be a scolding session for you, but rather to be a reminder and exhortation that listen, just as food is essential to sustain the body, God's word, the Bible is essential to sustain, sustain our souls. And God has been kind to reveal things for us that we need to consume and feed upon for our own good. The Bible is a gift. So friend, if you're not reading the Bible regularly, then today is a great day to start. It's a great day to start. Reliance upon God's word, the centrality of that. Like I said, I refer you back to last week's message to get more on that. Number three. This is where we spend the rest of our time and, and the bulk of our focus. A worship that is God-centric. And just really what I mean by that is just a, a God-centric 
mindset of who God is. Think about people being revived, they're, they're being renewed, they're, they're walking faithfully with God. It's because they have a high view of who he is, a right view. When people came together, we see they confessed their sins, they read from the law and they worshiped, verse four tells us, or excuse me, verse three tells us. And then verse four, on the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, uh, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kanani. And they cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God, the Levites, then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah and Pethahiah said, stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And then in verse six, you are the Lord. They begin this prayer of praise and it begins with you are the Lord, you alone. What we begin to see here is as the people respond in worship, they begin to root and ground their idea and understanding of who they are and all that's going on in a right perspective of who God is. One of the things I love about Nehemiah chapter nine is that not only is it a prayer of praise that we can kind of get into the details and the content of worship, prayer in this sense, it's a prayer of praise, it's a prayer, so we kind of get into the, the content of this prayer here, and we begin to understand how they prayed and how that should inform even our praying today, but, but that's helpful. But on the other hand, what we have here is a retelling of Israel's story, of the history of Israel. So listen, if you are new to the Bible, Nehemiah chapter nine is a great overview of what the Old Testament is about. It's, it's, it's a kind of a broad overview, a flyover look of what the whole Old Testament has been talking about. And so Nehemiah historically falls at the end of the Old Testament. So we're at the end historically, if you're looking at a calendar or you're looking at a timeline, Nehemiah's at the end of that. And so now this chapter nine is kind of given a flyover look at the kind of big overview, big picture of the Old Testament. Really helpful. But as we get this big picture, review of the Old Testament recounting the history of Israel, what we are seeing is really the history of God's activity throughout from beginning to the point in which they are at this time. It's a history that is centered upon the work of God in the world. So just skimming even through this chapter, you're gonna see how God is the central actor throughout Israel's life. One of the things I think that is true of the people experiencing revival can be seen even in the content of their prayers and we see that here. I want you to notice several things about this prayer as it concentrates our understanding of who God is. Number one, we see it's an embrace of God's greatness. You see that there at the beginning of verses four through six, how the, 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 the leaders, the Levites there, call the people to stand up and bless the Lord. Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. 
They're calling the people to, to praise and to delight in who God is, that he is exalted. We know that as they read the word of God, they were informed and confronted by the reality of God's holy character. They see God for who he truly is. And verse five, acknowledge that he's from everlasting to everlasting, that verse six, that he alone is the Lord, he's worthy. We know that God demonstrates his greatness all throughout the scriptures and that the law of God, the commands of God magnify his holiness. And so when we think about our response and our prayers and our perspective, our prayers before God ought to be filled with a sense of awe of who he is, of his greatness and his supremacy. Listen, we need not to be so quick to praise God for what he does, but simply to take note of who he is. Praise ought to be one of the, the aspects of our prayers and, and, and our devotion to God where we just sit back and simply admire God for all that he is, that we would treasure him. You'll never plumb the depths of him. But we would see him for who he is, that we would embrace his greatness. Then second, I want you to see how they affirmed his goodness. The content of their praise begins in verse six as they recount the history of Israel, which ultimately is a testimony to the goodness of God. Let's walk through this summary. So in verse six, you see, first of all, a so this is the overview, right? This is the overview of the Old Testament. So verse six, you see, it begins in creation. You are the Lord, you alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the sea and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. So as they, as they begin to pray and call out to God, as they since this, this period of renewal and revival in their lives, they are acknowledging that God is the creator of all, the, the earth and all that's in it, even the seas and all that's in them, and the host of heaven, stars, the sun, the moon, the planets. What we see is this is establishing the fact that God is the one to whom all are accountable. He's the one who establishes it all. He creates the world. He's the one to whom all praise is due and he and he alone. So they affirm God's goodness through creation. But number two, you see, they affirm God's goodness by remembering the work, the promise God made to Abraham and the covenant. Look at verse seven. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of, the, out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made him the covenant to give to his offspring, the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. So now we fast forward from verse six to verses seven and eight, which takes us from Genesis one to Genesis 12, Genesis 12, 15 and 17 in God's work of calling Abram, giving him the name Abraham and promising that he would be the father of many nations, that through him, the promise of this covenant would flow. So we see how God chose him, how God promised to him and through Faith, through his faith and trusting the promise of God, Abraham remained faithful to God, thus setting a good example for the descendants, which they didn't follow so well. But God is the one who remains faithful. 
You see that in verse eight, and you have kept your promise. They're, they're looking back to the beginning of Genesis, creation, and then the promise and the covenant God made with Abraham, and they know what's happened from there to their time. It's not been a pretty, pretty scene. And though you made this promise to Abraham and though he remained faithful to you, it's been a train wreck pretty much from there on, but God, you remain faithful to your promise. You said through him, you would bless the nations. And God does. But then you pick up in verse nine and you begin to go from Genesis to Exodus. This picks up with the Exodus uh, from Egypt and the wilderness journey. Verses nine through 21, let's pick up in verse nine. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea, performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they had acted arrogantly against our fathers and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into the mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down from Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go and to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. So we go from creation to Abraham to now God's working through Moses. By the time you get to the end of Genesis, we know that Jacob and all the sons of Jacob are now relocated to, to Egypt. And what, what begins in Egypt as a time of prosperity has now ended up in a time of misery. The people of God begin to grow and Egypt gets nervous and so they enslave them and they begin to cry out to God and God hears their cries and he raises up Moses to bring them out of bondage, which is exactly what we just read, those first few verses there. It's a reminder that God hears the cries of his people. He sees their affliction, so he acts to rescue them. And in a miraculous fashion, he does that. An entire nation he leads out of Egypt. Not only that, he provides for their, we're not talking about just 10 or 20 people, hundreds of thousands of people that he brings out provides for them daily. And in verse 16, we see how they respond to God's kindness. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. After all this, after God heard their cries, rescued them out of Egypt, gave them the law of commandments to obey and to follow, which were good and righteous. To thank God for all of that, they stiffened their neck and said, that's not good enough. Verse 17, they refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. They would rather have their bondage in Egypt than the freedom they enjoyed with the Lord and his mercy, provision for them. Look at verse 17 again. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return them to their slavery in Egypt. Look at the very next verse though. But you are a God ready to forgive. Gracious and merciful, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. What a beautiful reminder of God's kindness and his mercy. Look at this, verse 18. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf. Remember Moses went back up to the mountain and Aaron was left in charge. They get a little nervous because Moses is taking his time and they create an idol, a golden calf. Remember Aaron's response? We just kind of threw the golden and out came this calf. And so they start worshiping this golden calf because Moses is, is delayed in coming down from the mountain. Idolatry. I mean, it's ridiculous, it's absurd when you think of all that God has done and how he's shown his faithfulness to them and now they're bowing down to a golden calf wanting to go back to Egypt. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf, the scripture says, and said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. Pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them day by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. This is what God had done for his people and yet they stiffened their neck and said, we would rather go back to Egypt and disobey your commands. This is who we're dealing with. But that scripture multiple times it shows up in various, various ways reworded throughout this text, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Did they deserve to be forsaken? Absolutely. But God did not forsake them. Brothers and sisters, let's stop right here for a minute and just ponder this reality. Aren't you glad God is a God ready to forgive? That God is gracious and merciful, that he is patient that he's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and he does not forsake his people. Aren't you glad that he is long suffering? That he doesn't just strike you dead at the moment of your first thought of disobedience to him? Friend, you may find yourself here today and you look a lot like verse 16. Maybe you're weary, maybe you've just not found God's commands and his word all that good and joyful in your life. Maybe you're, you're struggling with sin, maybe you're just frustrated with life in general, but listen, friend, listen, God is a God who is ready to forgive. He is steadfast in his love. He is filled with mercy. Look to him. We're gonna see that continue on in the next section of scripture. Next section in verse 22 through 31 covers the conquest, the rebellion, the judges, period of the prophets and exile and God's merciful preservation. So verses 22 through 31 really takes us from the book of Joshua to present day of where they are in Nehemiah's day. 
So in verses 22 through 25, we see the conquest of the promised lands reference. Look at verse 22, and you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and their peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns ready to to cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive oils, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. So that references just the, the promised land as Joshua goes in and takes possession of the land promised to the people. They, they experience the goodness of God and as they take possession of the land. Verse 26, nevertheless, Surprise, surprise, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard from heaven and according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. This appeared to the judges. But after that, they had rest. But after, excuse me, but after they had rest, they did evil again before you. You see the pattern here? And you abandoned them into the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn back to your law, yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he should live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. So that's exactly what God said would happen. Here are my commandments, here's my word. If you obey it, great, you will be blessed. If you disobey it, I'll scatter you among the nations and you will have enemies come to take possession of the land and strip you out of it. And that's exactly what took place. Now they're returning. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. Look at verse 31. Nevertheless, The nevertheless of verse 26 is now countered with the nevertheless of verse 31. It's a beautiful picture of redemption. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you. Verse 31, nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them for you are a gracious and merciful God. They could not send their way out of the reach of mercy. Friends, this is really a beautiful picture of the gospel, isn't it? The story of the people of God in the Old Testament is a story of a good creation that quickly went bad and wrong because of sin and disobedience to God. This man and woman turn their backs upon the creator, but God acts in, a, in, a, in an act of mercy and grace to, to call out a people for himself, 
to make promises to them. And even though they continue to turn their backs against him time after 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 time again. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end to them or forsake them. For you are a gracious and merciful God. Reminds me of Ephesians chapter two, doesn't it? Ephesians chapter two, Paul says, and you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy, same God, same mercy, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were stupid in our sin, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. What a beautiful picture of God's covenant commitment to his people. In his book, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland says this about God's mercy. He says he is a billionaire in the currency of mercy and the withdrawals he makes as we sin our way through life cause his fortune to grow greater, not less. He goes on to say that God is rich in mercy means that your regions of deepest regret and shame are not hotels through which divine mercy passes, but homes in which divine mercy abides. Because God is merciful. Because God is gracious. Friends, we like Israel often make train wrecks of our lives in countless ways, in some ways weekly. And yet God stands ready to forgive. He is eager to extend his generous mercy to you. So brothers and sisters, do not allow the burden of your sin to crush you when there is a fountain of mercy available to cleanse you. This is who God is. He's not this stern, angry God just waiting to smite you when you mess up. He is patient and long-suffering, and when you do turn your back against him, he stands there ready to open his hand of forgiveness to you yet again and again and again. It's a recounting of God's goodness. As you look back throughout the whole story of the Old Testament, that's what we see. It's a story of sin and rebellion, but friends, over top of that, it is a story of God's faithful, faithful commitment to be generous and kind and gracious, to preserve a people for himself. The third thing we see, after you see that his greatness is embraced, his goodness is affirmed, you see his grace being pursued by the time you get to verse 32, and as they've recounted all this Old Testament history, kind of an overview fashion, look at what they say. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, still extolling his greatness, 
who keeps covenant and steadfast love, remembering his goodness. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, and our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Do you see what they're doing? We see how great you are. We see how good you've been. Lord, don't forsake your covenant with us now. Be gracious to us yet again. Verse 33, yet you've been righteous in all that has come upon us for you have dealt faithfully and we've acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them in the large and rich and the, that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day. In the land you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit, its good gifts, behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please. And we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Looking back throughout the history of God's faithfulness to them, they come now to this point of saying, Lord, you've been right to judge us for our wickedness. You have been faithful to your word. We've not been faithful to our word. You've been faithful to your word. You've done exactly as you said you would, but God, we know you are the great and mighty and awesome God who keeps covenant. And you are that one who, who's promised that your steadfast love will not forsake us. And in that, it's a cry for help. It's a cry for God to move upon them Yet again, they know he's faithful to his promise. And so they confess their unfaithfulness and they appeal to God for his grace. You see, there are people whose worship, whose mindset is centered upon God. And they extol his greatness. They affirm his goodness throughout the past and throughout their history. And their confidence now, their confidence rests in who God is for their present. It's interesting that after the people confess their sins and they rehearse this faithfulness of God throughout the history of the people, that they make covenant. It's not a new covenant per se that God's making with them. They're basically making a promise to God in verse 38. They're making promises to follow the Lord. We make a firm covenant in writing. We're writing this down today, Lord. We're looking back to see your greatness. We, we, see, we see it. It's clear from creation to this day, you are great and awesome and you alone are the king of kings. We've rebelled countless times, we have no excuses and yet you've remained faithful to forgive us. So Lord, would you do it again? And if you would, we're committing ourselves this day to follow after you. It's a way for them to mark this time of renewal in their lives. They've struggled to remain faithful, but they see how God has remained faithful. And because of that, they want to trust him again. So they commit themselves to the Lord in a fresh way. Brothers and sisters, do these things characterize your walk with the Lord? Humble confession of sin. Is that a regular thing? For you? 
Is that a regular thing that you practice, a regular experience that you enjoy, a regular discipline of God's kindness that you, that you engage in? Do you regularly commit yourself and submit yourself to, to the truth of God's word as he's revealed in scripture? And as you worship and as you pray and as you walk with the Lord is, is the centrality of God, the very foundation from which you live your life. Do you understand that it is God and his greatness? He's from everlasting to everlasting. Friends, do you long, do you long for revival? If these aren't true in your life, is this something you long for? Do you long to walk faithfully with the Lord? They're, they're, they're here at the end, look at what they're saying. We are slaves in this land you gave our fathers. You remember what Ezra prayed back in Ezra 9 verse eight? Remember what he prayed? That our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. Brothers and sisters, may that be the same spirit of our prayers. May we long for and pray for and seek for a sense of renewal in our own slavery, in our own bondage, in our own fallenness, in our own weaknesses, that we would long for the work of God to revive us and renew us and rekindle in us a spark of faithfulness to him because he has not changed. And may we like the people of Nehemiah's day know what genuine revival is like as we walk with the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for giving us a snapshot into lives of your people at a point in time in which they were being renewed. Father, it wasn't enough for them simply to return physically to this land and rebuild. Your work would not be finished until their lives were reformed and changed so that they would walk with you as a people faithful to you. Lord, would you keep that before us today? Lord, would you keep before us a yearning, a longing, a seeking, a praying for, a pleading for even, a sense of renewal, revival, whatever word we wanna use in our own hearts and lives before you individually, Lord, that that would be our individual yearnings this day. And if it's not, that you would confront us in our apathy, in our complacency, and that you would this rekindle in our own hearts. Lord, we, we can't do this. We're probably a room filled with people that's not thought much about it. So Lord, would you bring it? And Father, would you even change our prayers so that we would pray more for it? Lord, we know that we can't be where you call us to be without your work. And so Father, help. Help us, help us to see you for who you truly are, that we would look back throughout the course of history. That's what the, part of the, the reason you've given us the scriptures is to look back throughout the ways that you faithfully dealt with your people time after time again. God, that we would see your generous grace, your steadfast love, your mercy. God, that we would cling to that in hope. God, would you stir our hearts and our affections this day 
that we might find our joy in Christ and that we would walk faithfully with him all our days. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.